This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Rhode Island is the first state to take an important, if ultimately symbolic, step toward reducing harms associated with opiate addiction. The state has legalized safe consumption sites for people addicted to opioids. Cato's Jeff Singer details why Rhode Island won't be the last state to do this and why it's important for states to bring addicted people out of the shadows. In the interest of harm reduction, which uh, we should all be seeking in our lives on a consistent basis, uh, what is the best case to be made for safe injection sites for what we can just refer to as hard drugs? Okay, well, safe injection sites, also known as safe consumption sites, and some people call them overdose prevention centers. They've actually been around since the late 1980s. Uh, So we got a good track record. They've been in existence in about 120 locations in 66 major cities in Europe, Canada, Australia. Um, The idea is these are people who are intravenous drug users. An advantage that they have over needle exchange programs, which gives them clean needles and syringes and reduces the the spread of HIV and hepatitis and other infectious diseases, is these people, many, many of these people are actually down and out and living on the streets. This brings them inside where they're given a clean needle and syringe and a staff member is standing close by with the overdose antidote naloxone, so in case they overdose, they could rescue them. They're giving testing, given testing equipment so they could check to make sure that whatever they have, it doesn't have unknown things in it that they didn't expect, like fentanyl, which is cause an overdose. Um, they're offered testing for HIV and hepatitis. They're given a place to shower and clean up and stay for a while after they inject. It's called chill rooms where they uh, could, so they don't just walk out after the immediate effects. But also after they're done injecting, the staff takes the needle and syringe back from them. So unlike in a safe, in a needle exchange program where the needle goes out on the street, could be sold, could be left on the street. Uh, uh, instead, this is collected and they're told, you know, you need to, you can come back as often as you need to. We'll give you another one every time. Uh, and another advantage is you see people complaining increasingly of seeing people inject drugs in, in, in broad daylight in front of their families, uh, needles and syringes lying on the streets. Well, this is all brought inside out of the view of, you know, young children and families. So there's a lot of advantages. And over the years, what, what's been found is not only has this succeeded in reducing overdoses and the spread of disease, but because the operators of these facilities uh, are non-judgmental, it's, it's out of compassion. They just want to reduce harm. Um, the the clients, they call them, of the safe consumption sites, eventually they feel like for the first time, maybe in a long time, somebody actually cares about them. They start to kind of open up. Uh, and then the people who work in these facilities, you know, offer them help with into, into rehab programs. So they're not just successful in reducing deaths and disease, but they're also, also successful in bringing people who need help with their substance use disorder into treatment. And they're so successful that, they, like I say, they've been employed for over 30 years in much of the developed world. What has Rhode Island done? Well, Rhode Island is the first state in the union to just pass, uh, the governor just signed into law last week, uh, a law legalizing safe consumption sites in their state and authorizing 
two pilot programs in two different parts of the state, both of which will not receive any taxpayer funding. These are totally privately funded or foundation funded, but they're going to be allowed to operate. And then, of course, they're going to collect data and see how they work. Uh, a lot of people uh, you know, complain about their tax dollars going for these things, but there are a lot of organizations that are completely privately funded uh, and that doesn't have to necessarily be taxpayer funded. That's all well and good for Rhode Island, but uh, what about the Fed's laws that I assume prohibit all of this? Yeah, the, the reason why you don't see this in the United States when uh, when you see it in most of the developed world, including our neighbor Canada, is because we have a law in the books that was passed in the mid nineteen eighties, what's called the Crack House Statute, and it says that it, it is against federal law for any person or entity to knowingly allow the use of an illegal substance on their premises. So based upon that law, a safe injection facility would be considered federally illegal. Now, as far as needle exchange programs are concerned, there is no federal prohibition on that. And in fact, the federal government has been encouraging that. Uh, They even have grants that help communities set up needle exchange programs, and more and more states are implementing them. A lot of states have paraphernalia laws that stand in the way of that, but that's a state matter. But but when it get into safe consumption sites, now you're getting into federal territory. So in 2019, a group uh, in Philadelphia, totally privately funded group that can, uh, includes uh, former Pennsylvania governor and Philadelphia mayor Ed Rendell, organized uh, a safe consumption site called Safe House. And uh, they were challenged by the Justice Department. Uh, at the district court le- level, they actually prevailed. They argued that uh, that when the safe when the crack house statute was passed, there wasn't even such a thing as a safe consumption site. It was targeted as at at uh, cocaine and crack, and and based on congressional intent, they argued that it that it should be allowed to to go through and they actually succeeded, but then it got appealed by the, by the justice department. And in fact, the Cato Institute filed an amicus brief, uh, joining with the um, American civil liberties union and also the Pennsylvania chapter of the ACLU, uh, on behalf of safe house in that case. But unfortunately, just this January of this year, the appeals court ruled that congressional intent doesn't matter. The law says you're not allowed to do this. So you can't do it. They then requested an an en banc ruling, which was denied in in, uh, late March of this year. And as of now, they're considering their options, including taking it to the Supreme Court. So that's where they stand in in Philadelphia. So, uh, you know, Rhode Island is a a different district, a different circuit. And of course, there's such a thing as prosecutorial discretion. We have a different administration. We have a different U.S. attorney in that region. So uh, I guess it remains to be seen uh, what's going to happen. I mean, the, the, the Justice Department could do in, to, in Rhode Island what it did in Philadelphia, or it could decide to uh, not do anything about it right now. It, it, all, it all depends. The, the, recently, there have been reports that both in, in the, on the executive branch in the White House, as well as in Congress, there's a renewed appreciation for harm reduction. So perhaps attitudes are changing, and and uh, one can hope that the uh, Justice Department won't go to court with Rhode Island. In the meantime, 
momentum is building for this. Uh, the state of Maryland has been trying to do this for a couple of years legislatively. Uh, this year also, a bill was introduced in Illinois and another one in New Mexico that would accomplish what, what Rhode Island just accomplished. In Illinois, it hasn't gone uh, beyond uh, the committee level. New Mexico had actually passed the House of Representatives and installed in the Senate. So the first state to actually take it all the way to the governor's desk and have it signed is, is Rhode Island. But as more and more states start doing this and more and more cities, there's an interest to do this in several major cities from New York to Boston to San Francisco to Seattle. Hopefully, um, the easiest way to do this, of course, is for Congress, which supposedly is interested in harm reduction, to repeal the crack house statute. <laughs> that would be the easiest way because then you don't have to worry about a, a court decision. But that's where we stand right now. And I'm hoping that momentum will continue to build for this really proven, compassionate and effective means of harm reduction. So the real roadblock here is the feds. I assume a lot of states don't want to do this uh, understanding that federal law is what it is and waste political capital on this idea, whether or not it's a great idea. Well, yeah, but there's also resistance uh, from the community. Uh, uh, even the group in, in Philadelphia was having some problems in, in the Kensington district of Philadelphia, where they planned to locate this. And by the way, the building was donated um, because a lot of residents say, I don't want you attracting uh, drug users into my neighborhood. Of course, the counter argument to that is, well, we're actually going to neighbors where there are a lot of drug users. So it's not like we're attracting them there. They're there. And we're actually drawing them off of the street where they're in plain sight of your children and bringing them inside where they don't have to see this. So that's, that's one argument. Uh, and, and then you hear a lot of people saying, well, you're just going to encourage people to, to use illegal IV drugs. And to me, that makes no sense at all because, I, in fact, I recently was asked about this myself. It makes I can't understand why anybody who hasn't at this point purchased, uh, let's say, heroin from somebody on the street uh, along with a needle and syringe to, to try see how it feels is suddenly going to now do that because he hears there's a safe consumption site a couple of blocks away. So, you know, here's a person walking around saying, gee, all my life I wanted to try heroin. Uh, and every time somebody's offered to sell it to me, I've, I've turned them down. But now that this safe consumption site, now I'm going to try it. I mean, that just defies logic, in, in my opinion. I visited one of these sites, a safe consumption site in Vancouver, and it seemed like the most sort of clinical, uh, boring place a basic medical facility. Uh, a man came in and received his needle, uh, had his own drugs, and consumed them. And we chatted with him for a while. And it it was strange how normal it appeared. Yeah. Uh, the first safe consumption site in North America was formed in Vancouver. It's called Insight. It was f formed in 2003. And at first, uh, if you talk to the director, Darwin Fisher, he'll tell you the first year or so, just like we're hearing here in the United States, there was some you know, pushback from law enforcement and from the community saying, I don't want this in my neighborhood, that kind of thing. But now it's extremely well received. And they, there, are, there are actually more than one in Vancouver and multiple ones in Canada and, and other major cities. Um, and and the, the, the nice thing about this is 
uh, a lot of people, their lives are actually put back together this way. Um, then they, they, they clean up. Um, they're able to control, you know, the drug use, avoiding going into withdrawal, uh, avoiding getting, uh, disease. And then, like I said, once they, once they see that actually people actually care about them, they engage them in conversations while they're, uh, hanging around. They like you, they don't like you to leave right away because, you know, they want the, the initial rush you get from the drug could make you a little bit, uh, you know, foggy when you're walking out in the street. So they have you hang out a little while, talk to them a bit before you go out. And all of a sudden, uh, according to Darwin Fisher, you hear people saying, you know, uh, they'll ask him, what'd you think about uh, the hockey game the other day? Because this is Canada. And the clients will be thinking, you know, nobody ever asked me what I think about anything anymore. They just kind of walk on the other side of the street when they see me. Um, and they get this sense of, you know, personal value. And and, and this, this starts uh, kind of a cascade going where eventually people ask for and receive help in their lives. And a large number of them end up overcoming their addiction, uh, putting their lives back together, getting a job, maybe getting you know a place to live. And the people in the safe consumption sites, consumption sites have, have people who work there who are there to help with those things too. So it's not just, you, you know, you inject and then leave. It's like a service kind of place. It's targeted at, at rescuing these people. So if, if the goal of policymakers is to reduce the number of overdose deaths and the spread of HIV and hepatitis and the number of people whose lives are being destroyed by addiction, this is the way to do it, not by putting them in cages and then releasing them back to that same exact environment that they were in before you captured them and put them in the cage. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 